Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. These are the teachings from our Sunday gatherings. We are supported by listeners like you who find value in the mission of discipleship. If you'd like to give financially, check out our website, our Instagram, or our Facebook for the giving tab. And thank you for partnering with us and keeping the mission alive. Grace and peace to you. Uh, so we're going to be going through a passage that's from the lectionary. Um, so if you guys want to dig in with us, we're going to, I'm going to start out with a little story um, that involves my daughter Malia and uh, an ice cream shop. Uh, but if you want to open your the app, yeah, she's like, what's going on? Intrigued now. Now I want to know what's happening. Um, sorry, I don't, don't have hands to do multiple things. Here we go. Um, pull the passage. It'll be on the screen as well. Um, but the passage that we're going to dig into today is interesting because it it gets pretty nuanced as to what is right and wrong. And it's interesting to see kind of what it talks about when it talks about idols. And that sounds like something that's 2,000 years ago that we don't deal with. Um, but hopefully I can give it some um, some depth and help it become real. See, it's okay. We can do that kind of stuff. It's family service. Um, but uh, to kind of set the stage for this, uh, I think it was maybe two months ago-ish, my buddy Jason uh, and his family, they moved out from Carlsbad out to Fallbrook, and we went out to visit them. And after we went and got ice cream, and so we went to this local ice cream spot uh, that was super tasty, but we walked into this ice cream store and with all the kids, see, she's like, I remember this one. And, um, and as you walk in, you guys know the awe that kids have where it's like, which one do I get? Cause there's like 500,000 flavors and I don't know which one to do. And the, you could see them just light up and they're just like trying to figure it out. What do I get? What do I do? And, um, and my buddy Jason's, uh, youngest Ellie is a little toddler, and she walks in, and she can't see ice cream. She just thinks it's just a building with stuff that everybody's excited about. Um, but she walked in, and on the floor was a small altar or, like, little kind of shrine set up um, that had fruits displayed as an offering to that little altar. And she walks up and grabbed one of the oranges that was there and just pulled it off the altar and ran outside, and the girls were like, wait, she can't do that, right? And they were like, what is that? Like, why, why is there fruit laid out at this? I think it was a, maybe a little Buddha or something. I should have like, like asked a little more what was going on. But it created an opportunity for us to have a conversation about offering and about how we begin to bring offering in different cultures and what that looks like. And, um, and different religions go about how they handle offerings and how they handle, um, I guess, what you would call idols, what we're going to read here in the scripture. Um, And what we see here today in this passage that we're about to read is a choice as to how we bring our offering, what we bring our offering to. and, And I love that interaction and that opportunity because that's something that's common around the world. We just don't know it. We still do it today. We just do it differently, okay? We don't necessarily do it um, in a traditional religious sense, which hopefully I can help us see um, as we dig into it, okay? So, um, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. Any of the kids want to read a couple lines? Read one of the screens? 
Are you guys into it? They're all scared, like, no way. The adults will not laugh, I promise. If you, they'll help you as you go through, and if you find a word that you can't read, anybody? Yeah, they're like, no way, not happening. Maybe next time, we'll prepare you for it, all right. Anybody else want to want to read? Anybody? Awesome. You can come up. If you, if you need to see it better, you can come up here if you want. All right, if that works, go for it. Thank you. You're awesome. Very well done. All right, I'm going to read the next one. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. Amen. We are no worse if we do not eat. And no better if we do. All right? So he just discredits everything before. And then the next one, he says, Be careful, however, that the, exor- the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. All right. So, interesting passage that, as you can see, he refutes the the challenge that he puts forward by saying, Food doesn't matter. Like, that is, that's not a, a sin issue. But, which we're going to talk about here in a second, in the context of idols and people who have come out of maybe a religious environment that we're, that we're worshiping, it said finger quotes, gods or lords, right? Um, that those then can cause someone to stumble, that then that food is connected to something greater than just a piece of meat, right? It becomes something that was already, that had a religious value to it. Um, The same way that when we were in that ice cream shop, that wasn't just an orange, right? You couldn't just grab that orange off the altar and start eating it. So we'd be like, wait, what? The owner of that shop probably would have been a little bit annoyed, like, dude, there's no respect here. Come on. So 
recognizing that food becomes more than just food sometimes, that objects in our world, things that we are part of, become more than just objects, we have to recognize that and how that translates into our faith and our walk with Jesus. And so what Paul does here is he develops this understanding, this teaching that knowledge isn't everything. And he even points out that like, if you are prideful about how smart you are, there's something wrong there. That he gets into that, that he's just like, if you think that you're so smart and you've got this whole thing figured out, um, you think you can just do whatever you want to do, then you're missing the element of love that is connected to how we relate to other people. Because sure, like if you get into that situation, meat is just meat. And so he was like, for some of you, you can eat a steak and you're totally fine. But to others, that steak has a connection to something greater that, um, or something even, in some cases, evil, or some cases, distracting from the real faith that they're invited into, um, and what they would call pagan idols. And so there's this discernment that has to happen in there. And so I want to talk about that. We're going to kind of unpack it a little bit and look at some other passages, um, which all that are in the notes, if you want to see them when we get to that point. Um, but much of Corinthians, this letter that is written to the church in Corinth by Paul, uh, had to deal with a lot of different cultural things that they were coming out of that they decided were either good or bad. And as they're following Christ now, they're having to discern what are the things that matter and what are the things that don't matter, right? And so uh, it goes on and at the, the beginning of what Paul does is he just begins to place this contrast on knowledge and love. And that the knowledge uh, in the Greek was gnosis, and love was this word agape. And the agape love that he uses there, the reason he uses the different, because there's three different kinds of love, right? Um, there's the erotic kind of love. Like we have one word for love. Back in the day, they had different words for it. Um, there was an idea of like brotherly love where you care for a person. And then there was a godly love that saw beyond outward appearance, that saw beyond any kind of performance, anything you've done and says, I love you regardless. Regardless of what you've done for me, I'm going to love you. And so he uses that word, that agape love to say, this is the kind of love we need to have for one another as we engage with these kind of issues, these cultural issues that we have. And so uh, the very beginning, he talks about how this like religious, sophisticated approach can be kind of like a, a puffing up, he says, um, a prideful way of approaching our faith um, that kind of says, like, I got it all figured out. I know how to handle all this stuff. Um, but what he says is he goes on and says, there needs to be this self-giving kind of love, this agape love that is modeled in what we see in Jesus. This love that says, I, I love you regardless of your background, things you've done, um, outward appearance, anything like that. And he says um, that this is the kind of love that the early community, that this church in Corinth is invited into. And so to give you some context, I want to like talk about Corinth, talk about what happened there. Corinth was one of the most decadent cities in the Roman Empire at that time. Um, there was tons of idol worship and um, lots of temples and lots of idols that were within those. And those were the social hubs of that time. So people would gather in those temples for meals. 
There was courtyards. There was areas where they would come together for, um, for meals that were sacrificed to those idols, to those gods, all right? All the different Greek gods. And, um, and so those buildings, those places of worship and gathering and eating together were common for everybody in that culture. Um, those temples hosted all kinds of meetings. So anytime someone in the community had celebrations or different things, they would have those celebrations inside that temple. And so the meat and all the food that was consumed in that temple was dedicated to gods, okay? And so um, in these large dining rooms, um, people would have, from a very young age, been very familiar with what it means to eat meat dedicated to idols, to these gods. And, um, and so it was very much tied to the food that they eat. And so... Um, the one of the um, so the the leader of that time in that city uh, was the son of Apollos, uh, one of the gods that they would dedicate to. Um, his name was Asclepius. Can you guys say Asclepius over here? Let's get their attention. Asclepius. You guys feeling sleepy? Um, and you might recognize this god as the one that in. Um, as a symbol of medicine today. So the snake wrapped around the rod. Um, is that what it is? Is it a staff, a rod? I don't remember. Uh, anyways. Um, but that would have been one of the gods in that culture, in Corinth at that time, that they would have worshipped and they would have sacrificed meat and eaten that, that sacrificed meat too. And so in that temple, um, there would have been this straight-up worship of these gods and the idols. And, um, and so Paul here, what he does is tells the people, actually, if you go forward a couple of chapters, it says, don't worship these idols. That now you've given your life to Christ, we no longer will, wa- will worship those idols. And so in that city at that time, that would have been a big shift. That your cultural, normal, like weekly meals would have taken place in that area where you're worshiping these gods. And now you're surrendering to Jesus. Now you're following singular God, not many gods. Um, and, and that, that God of, uh, do you guys remember his name? Uh, Asclepius, um, would have been a, you would have offered idol, um, meat and sacrifices to this God to have good health. That's why it ends up being the, the snake of, you know, medicine, health, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so what you're doing is you're shifting your focus from those gods being the thing that you like, if you give them some stuff, then your health will be good. If you have this transaction with them, everything will work out to now you're following Jesus and you're surrendering life to one singular God that created it all, that is connected to all of it, that doesn't require these kind of sacrifices, that isn't asking for meat sacrifices, right? So there's a giant shift that's happening. And so now people would have this decision to make, and this is why this is such a big thing, and it's why it's got paragraphs written about it, where he's like, can we eat this meat? Like, is this okay? Can we eat, can we be part of this meat that we've now used in worship? Um, did I throw the slides up there? I think uh, through the questions in the next slide, it says, can I take part in idol feasts that is actually worship? We would say no. If we read forward a couple chapters in the, uh, in the uh, First Corinthians 10, he says, no, don't do it. Don't worship these idols. You're now shifting your focus to Jesus. And then he says, can I take part in a civic event in the idol temple? 
depends. Are you going in to worship those gods? Or are you going in to stay connected with your family and friends and people that you're in community with? Um, now it starts to have these questions. Can I be part of those things? Because if Paul's saying, like, we shouldn't be part of that, like Jesus says, you shouldn't worship all these false idols, uh, when you, which we'll talk about a little more in a second, um, we have to discern that. And so these early believers were, were trying to figure it out. Like, can I? Can I not? And, and then the next layer, deeper than that, is any kind of meat that was left over from those te- uh, the temple worship um, sacrifices, um, those would have been then sold in the market as cheap meat. So a lot of people would have bought that meat that was offered um, as their weekly meal. Um, and so then it raises this question of like, can we buy this meat? Because it was offered to idols and it was connected to these false gods. And, um, and so first, the first century Christian in Corinth would really be facing this. I know this doesn't make any sense to us because we don't, at least right now, if, until we talk a little more, it doesn't really connect to it. We don't resonate with that. Um, can you eat these things? And it was kind of like a maybe. Depends on what category you put it in. Is it just meat to you or is it still connected to this idol that you were so connected to that you thought would bring you prosperity, that you thought would bring you good health? And now it's all intertwined. So can you do it or not? Um, What are you to do as a believer when you have these gray area questions? So I'll bring up more of a contemporary question um, of asking, is it the right thing? Um, I can't go into tons of detail today because all the kids are here, but I think you guys understand that there are certain things in our culture currently that we will justify as like, yeah, I can be a part of that because it's not necessarily bad. Um, But can I, is it good? Is it healthy? And is it going to cause my brother or sister as, as Paul says there at the end, to stumble? Is it going to lead them in a direction that is not good? Um, obviously, idolatry, idolatry was easy to point out in that culture, and you could see it, but it exists in our culture as well. Um, the Christian struggle today, the idols that we have, and we could use a different term if you want, the things that we worship, the things that we deeply value or care about, image, right? How about our bodily image? How about our feelings? Um, alcohol may be tied to that or any kind of substance, right? And we could say, well, it's okay for me to have a drink. Sure, 100%. What about three, four, five, right? What if your brother or sister has had massive struggles with that? And you think, okay, it's okay for me to have a drink, but my brother or sister here is trying to steer clear of that because of the destruction it's caused in their life. Is it still okay for me to have that drink with them? Is it okay for me to bring beer to their house? These are questions that are not black and white, are they? They're not things that we would say um, are easy to parse out and just say, this is the Christian way, this is not the Christian way. That's what Paul's talking about. And these are the kind of areas that we have to wrestle with as believers that no longer have a very clear-cut answer, but it requires discernment. It takes wisdom. It takes a heart. And it's not just a head knowledge, right? Because I can justify, like he pointed out in the first couple verses, um, with my head knowledge that 
I can have something and be totally fine. With my head knowledge, I can justify certain things. I can, and it's totally fine. And I, you can find scripture that'll justify it as well. But what we have to do is wrestle with it. It's like, what are the heart things? What are the things that when he talks about having an agape kind of love for others, that means that I'm going to put aside my personal agenda so that I can be a, a loving brother or sister to the person to my right or left, right? Or to my children. Um, and so it raises these really like, kind of complicated, difficult to parse through questions. I'm sure our Bible study conversation is going to be really tricky this week, right? As we dig into it. Um, but these are things that we have to wrestle with. And the attempt that Paul makes here is to recognize that sometimes we have, we want to have control over outcomes in our lives. We want to have control over the things that we do all the time. And I think sometimes we think that my choices don't affect other people. That we live in a very individualistic culture where I can do the things that I want to do and it shouldn't ever affect you. But the reality is that the things I do do impact you. That um, as we have relationships with people, they're watching how you live your life, how you carry yourself, your character, um, the things that you prioritize, and that has a witness. And so I titled this message, Totally Right, Yet Totally Wrong, because there are things that are totally right to do, but yet in certain contexts are totally wrong, right? Um, and that's the, the conundrum we find ourselves in. That's the passage that we find ourselves in and what Paul is trying to teach. He observes that um, what can be a liberating for, force for some has the power to destroy others, right? Something that can be totally liberating, like, I mean, we can keep using the alcohol analogy, but there's a lot of other things in our lives that we are a part of that are totally fine. They're totally okay. Um, and yet, in the wrong context, aren't. And that's wisdom. That's discernment. This isn't about right or wrong. This is about wise and unwise. What is good? What is healthy? What is going to build others up? Again, that, I would just hope that the word agape kind of sticks with us this morning. Uh, a love that is unconditional. A love that puts ourselves aside and says, I want the best for my brother or sister. I want the best for my community. I want the best for the world around me. And so I'm going to give up some of my personal freedoms so that they can have that. Um, I know this is, this is like a really intense, heavy like, thing to think through and process, but um, in verse 9, he says, take care. And that, those two words, I think, kind of sum it up, is take care that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block for others. So he's not like, be legalistic about it. Because again, alcohol, people get legalistic about it. Some people are either like one extreme or the other. I say it's a gray area, like somewhere in the middle, right? They're like, why can't we land somewhere in the middle where it's, I want to take care. I want to be responsible um, to the things that Jesus has entrusted me with, first off, my body, and then the witness that I have to others in ways I can love people and be a witness to them. Um, and so sacrificing these personal freedoms for the greater good is a lot of times the invitation that we see Paul pointing towards, that 
there will be a, um, a surrender to our own wants, desires in order for the greater good to come better. It's totally cool. Drop, the, drop them. It's totally fine. Um, it's not interrupting. Um, I mean it. I'm serious. You guys can be as loud as you want. Um, just kidding. Um, so what Paul addresses here is, is not just a 2,000-year-ago issue. It's an issue that we face constantly um, in how we carry ourselves, the things that we prioritize, um, how we use our power authority, how we use our possessions, um, the hobbies that we have, the interests that we have, our jobs, all those things um, can be used for great good and great evil at the same time, right? Um, and so having discernment in, the matter, in that is super important. And so um, the, I guess I want to just kind of like bring it home by using a couple of quotes that I, f- I really enjoy, um, how they word and articulate what I think Paul's trying to say here. And um, that how we decide... Um, if something is a sin or not, um, needs to be informed by how we love people. Um, Soren Kierkegaard says, to love another person is to help them love God. To help another person is help them experience God. And, um, and so does my life, do my words reflect that? Do I love people in a way that points them to who God is, um, hopefully away from who I am? Uh, but helps them see God a little clearer? Um, I hope so. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep using that alcohol issue because I think it's the most obvious one that sometimes uh, we wrestle with in the church and within the community. Um, that early on in my own life, and, and by no means are we as a church legalistic on this area, um, this is a decision for you to make, um, but early on in, in my commitment to following Jesus, um, I, I said, I'm just not going to drink alcohol because I saw how it wrecked my life all throughout high school, things that I did, the decisions that I made, the way that I treated uh, people as a result of my prioritizing alcohol in my own life. Um, I saw how damaging it was. And then I saw how damaging it was in other people's lives. And I was like, maybe I don't need that. And this isn't me trying to persuade you in any way right now. I'm just sharing as to why I came to that conclusion and how I began to own that in my life um, because I recognized that it could be an idol in my life. I enjoy it. Who doesn't, right? But if I make it this thing that I have to have, then that's an idol. If I make it a thing that fulfills my life, that somehow makes me physically feel better, maybe that's an idol, right? Um, And so that's where we get into these conversations where it can get very uh, complicated, but um, maybe some of you can relate to that, that there's certain things that maybe we cut out of our lives in order to create more love within our lives. And the choices that I made during those years where I was prioritizing myself, I know for sure was damaging to other people. 100%. And I wish I could go back and probably talk to some of those people and say, man, what I did during that time, not okay. The witness that I had in that time, not okay. 
And so again, I just want to drive home, not about legalism. Like, you want to have a glass of wine? Have at it. But we have to discern what is the best. Um, what is the best way to approach these things? And so um, Dennis Kinlaw puts it this way as we wrestle with what it looks like to understand this life in Christ. And, um, and I think there's a, a lie that we, we're told. And here's what he says. He says, Satan disguises submission to himself under the ruse of personal autonomy. All right? Personal autonomy, being able to just do whatever I want to do, right? Um, he never asks us to become his servants. It's interesting how he, how he puts this. Satan never asks us to become his servants. Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. The shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil. It's always from Christ to self. And instead of his will, self-interest now rules, and what I want reigns. And that is the essence of sin. That hit me like a ton of bricks when I read it. I was like, whoa, okay, so the times where I'm selfishly wanting just to put my own priorities first, uh, my own contentment, happiness, all those kind of things, um, sometimes comes at the cost of others. I'm not saying always. It's not a either or. Not always. But sometimes can come at the cost of others, right? If I continually prioritize my life all throughout the week and never prioritize my children, right? That's another idol. I've made myself the core focus of everything. And now my kids get nothing. So we all have those decisions throughout the week. How do we spend our time, our money? Um, what are the things that we partake in? It's not just meat 2,000 years ago, right? It, there's a connection. And so um, self-interest now rules what I want of reigns. And so, yeah, the, the whole idea of self-interest, we have to wrestle with that. And we live in a culture that says, I want it now. I want it my way, right away. Right? Any other phrases you guys can think of that advertising has told us? Um, but I want to close with this. Um, and we're going we're to have communion. Um, in 1 John 2, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Those are the three things, if you want to write this down or highlight that. Those are the three temptations that we all face on a daily basis or on a just moment-by-moment -moment basis. Lust of the flesh, so like our wants, desires, me, me, me. Um, the lust of the eyes, the things that we see, um, the things that we want. You see so-and-so has this. Oh, they're so happy they have all this. I want that. So lust of the eyes. Um, and then the pride of life, that I deserve certain things. Um, that all those things will begin to pull us away from Christ. And so, but he goes on and he says, um, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Those are the things the world pulls us into. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So this idea of eternal life, living life to the full and experiencing it, comes from really just recognizing that, that these are the areas where, and we're going to continually be pulled, lest the eyes, Right? Um, that the flesh is going to continually draw us into those things that we want, the pride of life. Um, and so every fourth Sunday, and it always lines up with what Jesus does, um, 
we take communion just as a continual reminder that what Jesus is doing is inviting us into this surrender. This thing that, that Paul's talking about where it's like, we've got to surrender our lives to the people around us and begin to really prioritize that kind of agape love that prioritizes our brother and sister over ourselves and our own wants and desires. And I know that this is going to be something you'll probably wrestle with throughout the week of like, okay, so what is good and what is bad? And sure, there's things I can get away with that are fine for me. They don't cause me to stumble. But what are the things that I need to wrestle with that are actually really good? And that's surrender. That's saying, I want to prioritize Jesus. And what communion is, is Jesus inviting us to say, remind yourself that you're tied to Jesus, that you're tied to him and what he's doing to bring redemption to all of the world. So when we take the bread, it's his body broken. Everything about Jesus reflects the kind of invitation that we have, right? Jesus literally spent his entire physical life here on earth serving, loving. And then the very last example of that, we see him lay down his life, literally to the point of death. So he exemplifies this like, if we want to transform the world we live in, it's going to require giving up of our lives. And it's taking the cup and just saying, I want to be reminded of this. I want to be reminded that your blood was poured out, that your sacrifice was given as a reminder of the sacrifice that we're called to live into, that now Jesus works through us. And that's why we ingest it. That's why we eat it. Because um, then it's a reminder, like, this is me. It's like everything about me, right, is living out the love of Jesus. And so that's the, the reminder that we take in communion. So I'm going to invite Shelby to come up and we're going to close with a song, but um, I'm going to pray over this. And then just as you feel led, if you um, have never taken communion, um, there's nothing, I guess, religious about it that has to be in a certain way, in a certain order. Um, this is really delicious Prager Brother bread. It doesn't have to be a, some kind of like special unleavened bread. Um, sure, some people might get legalistic about that again. That's, again, the thing that Paul's talking about. Grape juice. You can come grab it, dip it in, and take it, but it's just a reminder. It's meant to be a reminder that we want to be part of what Jesus is doing in bringing about healing in this world, bringing about peace, bringing about his grace, and he does that through us. Um, whether we um, and it's just a, it's a choice that we just say, hey, I want to be part of that or I don't. And, and that's the invitation. And so let me pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us, that um, you demonstrated that on the cross by um, shedding your blood, giving up of your life, your body broken. And, um, and, and that was a, a beautiful reminder of what it looks like to be sacrificed, to give up of our lives so that others may truly live and others may experience life to the full and so um, yeah we, we're reminded of this as we take the bread and the cup and we pray this in your name, amen just as you feel led come on up